Hey, FFR listeners, this is the producer Rob speaking. It's that time of year when everyone starts to think about the important things in life, like our taxes. Did you know that a donation to Feminist Frequency is actually tax deductible? If you have a few bucks a month to spare, head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak, F-E-M-F-R-E-Q. Help us out, but also help yourself to all the great exclusive content that's available only to people who are signed up on our Patreon. Nicholas Holt's character, we learn, was aware of the entire conceit of this night. So why was he taking yes. pictures of the food? Was he gonna, When was he going to look at those? Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian. And I'm Kat Spada. And this is the final course of our three-episode series, Eat the Rich. But we're still hungry. I read it in the script and I was still surprised that he said it. Uh, good thing, because we made reservations for dinner at the most exclusive Michelin-starred restaurant that money can buy. We watched the 2022 film, The Menu. Directed by Mark Mylod, this high-concept comedy thriller stars Anya Taylor-Joy as Margot, one of several unsuspecting diners at an isolated restaurant led by the severe and intimidating chef Slowick, played by Ray Fiennes. As the evening unfolds, the courses served up by Slowick's army of devoted staff grow more and more twisted, leading to mind games and violence. The ensemble cast includes Hong Chow as Slowick's maitre d', Nicholas Holt as Margot's date, a pretentious foodie, and Janet McTeer and John Leguizamo among a coterie of the wealthy and famous. Although the menu was not recognized by this year's Academy Awards, when Chow received her Best Supporting Actress nomination for her role in Darren Aronofsky's The Whale, many on film Twitter pretended that the nod was for this film instead. In particular, her delivery of the line, Tortillas, Tortillas Deliciosas. Joining us is Salejo, a James Beard award-winning food, culture, and travel writer who is the San Francisco Chronicles restaurant critic. Their podcasts include The Chronicles Extra Spicy, and they co-founded Racist Sandwich, a show about the intersections of gender, race, and class with food. Soleil is the co-writer of Meal, a graphic novel about culinary mentorship, queer romance, and bug eating, also known as... Entomophagy! They're currently working on The Memory of Taste, a cookbook from Oakland Chef to David Fu coming this year. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk about rich people and the food they love. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many questions. I mean, this is inspired, you know, think piece upon think piece. But like, what has been, I mean, have people in the food world been talking about this movie or has it been just kind of like, oh, that, I hate it when movies try to pretend they know what's going on in our world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've heard a lot of chit chat about this movie in the food world among restaurant workers who talk about how it mirrors a lot of the big stories that happened in the food world recently. I know that the writers read the story about the Willows Inn in uh, Washington that had a huge, it's very similar. It's like a uh, Michelin starred restaurant that was internationally renowned and was on an island mm. <laughs> and, um, you know, was known for all of this sort of um, very precious farm to table type stuff. And it turned out to be, one, like really abusive. Two, they got a lot of produce from Costco. Just a lot of uh, subterfuge and not so accurate kind of things that they were doing. Things like the pre-dinner tour, right? And mm -hmm. the, the nature of all the, the creatures that come in to eat these sorts of meals felt very accurate to a lot of people. I felt a little attacked <laughs> in, the, in the best way, you know? Um I think, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I've i done a lot of fancy meal stuff. Uh, and so I think for those of us who have done this, it's kind of this like, like I laughed a lot at the beginning of this movie because I was like, yep, this is like, this feels like a accurate, somewhat exaggerated, but not totally way that like people talk about food, the way that like people are treated in these restaurants, like the the over the topness of it, um, the expectation around kind of being a, like an amateur food expert in coming into these spaces and using words like mouthfeel and shit, you know? Yeah, I think that's what the movie does really well is that it, it sort of, if you are 
familiar with that world and you're part of it, there are these little moments of recognition of like, oh, they got that right. They got that right. And then, you know, you're called into question for like, okay, but like, if this is familiar to you, what does that say about you and the kind of world that you're propping up through this kind of hobby, right? Yeah, I don't know how far we want to go into the movie right now off the bat, but um, yeah, go for I it. I think the big thing, there were so many accurate like moments and, you know, the, the movie uses metaphor, like metaphorical violence to talk about really like, structural violence in the restaurant world. No, no, no. The, the big thing at the center, though, is that for me, the kitchen was too diverse. Mm. Interesting. Um, in the world of fine dining, there's not a ton of diversity in the ranks of folks at the, in the highest echelons, right? And the ones that have more diversity, let's say Noma and Copenhagen, they they get people who intern and stage, you know, work for free for that restaurant from all around the world. And that's a really interesting part of the experience there. People from Thailand, people from Senegal, like everywhere. But they're obviously being exploited. Like, it's obvious. It is just, you have to have tons of expendable wealth to actually volunteer, in air quotes, for these restaurants and get that line on your resume. You know, like any sort of prestigious internship in any industry, you have to have connections or you have to have money or both. And so I can't see a diverse kitchen being willing to die for their chef. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like everywhere yeah. I've worked. Yeah. I've worked at restaurants that have been very diverse and like in along all sorts of in all sorts of contexts. And, you know, generally speaking, the people of color that worked at them, we all had a pretty sober view mm. of working for white chefs. So <laughs> that was the one part that I was like, what? Okay. Like emotionally yeah. everything felt very um on pitch, but that was the one thing where I was like, what? No. <laughs> I I want to dig into that a little, like, let's get a little granular on that, actually, because, and we're just going to jump straight to spoiler or whatever, like, this movie's on HBO. Um, <laughs> you can watch it. <laughs> so, yeah, like, the, the concept of we're all going to die was uh, theoretically come up with by this woman who works in the kitchen who had been harassed by the chef. So, like, we're supposed to believe that that was her idea. But the the workers that we do kind of get, like, a snapshot of are this white woman who had been harassed, um, Hong Chow, who plays the maitre d', who's, like, the kind of second-in-command of this, like, militant family here. And then is it just two white men that we really see? Like, the one who wants to be like chef slow the sous chef the sous yeah. chef and then the one who's pretending to be a coast guardsman like is that like that's an interesting everyone else is still just kind of a background like part of the background painting i hadn't really thought about that about like these uh the kitchen staff and their agency and any of this like they kind of fall into maybe the um john leguizamo's assistant role where it's like well you're here so you're part of it. <laughs> like, There's also, um, this is an interesting in the context of they are really setting up a class warfare dynamic in a lot of ways here, um, which could be interesting if they addressed what Soleil is talking about, uh-huh. right? Like, it, instead, it's like, there's just a lot of white people who are not in the 1% that are like the the folks who aren't, who are the workers, right? And that also comes into play when Anya Taylor-Joy's character is revealed to be a sex worker and isn't one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, she disrupts the performance and the, the what, what the chef was trying to do, I guess, or what they were all trying to do in this space. Um, and so you're aligning, there's, a, there's an alignment, a class alignment here that is happening along uh, race lines and whiteness, really. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to be the person who is like, you know, this work of art that didn't hit the mark because it didn't address this thing uh, that it didn't want to, which is fine, right? Right. But to me, it came off as doing a like a reboot of, gosh, um, Lord of the Flies and making it more racially diverse. Like, that doesn't work, mm-hmm. right? Like, that movie, or that, sorry, that, that book is about, like, you know, young white British boys and, like, how they are interpolated into state violence 
as part of their sort of, you know, natural state, which is, you know, using the natural and civilization as metaphors. So this movie, it didn't make sense to me. It just didn't make sense to me on that level of just, and it's funny, right? To be like, wait, this is too diverse. I, I kind of sound like a right winger here, but <laughs> it just didn't. No, that's that's fair though. I feel like I, I've been watching, I feel like in the, in the, the wave of the last decade where it's like, unacceptable to have films that are all white people you have these sort of wedged in people of color who are like the main character's best friend or partner in ways that you're like or or even if there is a main character you're still like this is a white movie right like this is about white people and whiteness and just because you cast a person of color sort of tangentially in this space it's still very much situated there so i, I just wanted to like I, I know you're like you made the joke about sounding like a right winger but like it still isn't really authentic uh, authentic so but, it, but it's, kind it's of... a flattening of of reality like just to say like well it looks a certain way doesn't mean that it feels or reads a certain way right yes <laughs> i'm glad you brought up noma <laughs> uh for a couple of reasons but one i think it's very interesting that um when this movie came out or shortly after this movie came out um one noma is shutting down. Uh, they announced that they're closing. Um, and also a bunch of accusations came out about Rene Redzepi, the the chef of Noma, which I'm sure is like common knowledge in in food circles. But the fact that it was like sort of publicly spread around, I think is very interesting that it's, I don't know if it was timed to this or whatever, but there's something interesting about like watching a film display this level, right? It's the same kind of caliber level of, of like food surface with a chef that like yeah obviously he's shitty like this is not new in the the chef world to have to have that and like you were talking about the workers who are exploited right and i i went to noma and you know you get like a tour of the kitchen and shit and you you see like you see that you know and like there's this one dish that i had that was fucking amazing i don't i don't actually think noma's amazing but you know whatever that's a different conversation uh, I think it's fascinating and interesting. But there's this one dish that was like really fucking amazing to me. And it was like um, ma like chocolate covered moss, uh, which is the most insane thing to make. <laughs> and the only way they could make it is because they have like 10 interns like meticulously picking the fucking dirt off of that moss before they like flash. Uh, I don't fucking know food shit. It's fine. Um, and so like you're you're back there after spending hundreds of dollars and like enjoying this meal and watching these people kind of like it's a jarring experience if you're paying attention you know like if you're actually like watching it happen uh, and recognizing that these kinds of meals come at a cost yeah i think it's a lot of the conversations that people have around fast fashion for instance apply uh -huh. very much so to food and i think restaurants are really effective ways to talk about the engines of capitalism and alienation and labor, you know, these like kind of juicy, big issues in the world of production and making money off of that and off of people's excess time, right? Um, and in very similar ways as, let's say, like an Adidas sneaker, fine dining is fetishized pretty heavily. And mm -hmm. we are only just beginning to talk about labor in that regard. And not even just, not, not even like a real conversations. We just acknowledge that, yes, a team of people made this, but we still are very involved in, you know, chef celebrity culture and in the ideology of the genius who makes all of this food from nothing, you know? So I don't, I think we need more practice at talking about the the <laughs> bigger picture of, of labor and production and food, but, you know, um, it's pretty urgent for a lot yeah. of people who, who work in that world. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really excellent analogy to fashion because like and i want us to talk a little bit about like capital a authenticity or whatever because i feel like that's a big thing the movie is getting at and that a lot of these stories try to get at are we do we think about the migrant farm worker that's involved in our like in the production of our meals as much like that's a question that i would ask and i'll recommend to anyone gosh i'll try to find the link for the show notes but um there was like an uh an edward r murrow investigative report about um about migrant farm workers that aired on thanksgiving night in 1960 and you can watch it and it's fantastic um and it's still 
really relevant uh, all these years later. But I wanted to ask you all, like, I was kind of surprised when I was watching this movie. I thought it was going to be a little more intellectual than it was. And when I kind of realized, like, oh, this is this is like a funny, fun movie. Like, this isn't really trying as hard as I expected it to. I mean, maybe that's weird to go into it with that expectation. But I'm thinking about this movie and The Bear, which Anita and I both watched and loved. And there's there's been a several others. I, I suddenly remember the movie The Hundred Foot Journey, where there's this kind of positioning of like, yes, this is all full of like sort of artifice. And well, you have to really get down to authenticity. And what does authenticity mean? And in The Hundred Foot Journey, it's like this guy whose dream is to go on to like stage at Noma, but he is successful with a, an Indian restaurant. And how does that affect his sense of self? Like here, ultimately, are we supposed to feel like it's more authentic if you strip all of this away? Like, is that the value? I mean, I, I really don't know. I don't know what message I was supposed to come away from this with. Like, yeah, man, if only I can have the best crinkle cut fry, then I'll like truly <laughs> understand the joy of, of food. Like, I, I really don't know what I'm supposed to feel. Oh, my gosh. You know, when you mentioned that, I am reminded of, um, have you two seen Pig? The movie with... Yes. Uh, yes. Right. So there's that that moment when Nicolas Cage has that conversation with this chef that he used to mentor, right, who's making fine dining. And he's like, didn't you want to open a diner? Right? Yeah. And the guy like just kind of breaks under that question. And then have you two seen, uh, gosh, Always Be My Maybe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there's that conversation that the two lead characters have, you know, one's a chef and one isn't about, you know, and she's she's making this fine dining kind of Vietnamese restaurant. And he's just like, why do you make? Why don't you make real food? You know, that mm -hmm. people eat, not just you know Asian food for white people. And like you know, there's this gesture towards an authenticity conversation that that has been repeated in media lately about restaurants and about you know, and, and in large part about art of people who are making compromises that are you know more commercial and not making the food that's really close to their heart. And that there's a real there's a real somewhere there's a there there you know mm -hmm. that they are not fulfilling and that is the gaping hole and that is the solution to whatever conflict has come up in this film and i think that is a really interesting idea because it's so it's almost like a christmas carol-y a little bit right like you have to find the heart you have to find the soul beyond like the cold capitalist logic right but in the same time it all just comes back to a capitalist solution, you know, and always be my maybe she opens a homestyle Korean restaurant in, um, in pig, you know, the solution is to, you know, maybe open a diner and uh, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I just watched big night, uh, the Stanley Tucci Campbell Scott film. Uh, and it, it is very similar to this because the struggle is that these are two Italian immigrants and the, the like the 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 one of the brothers who's like the like genius chef is making really authentic food and people just don't like it uh and like you know there's a server uh, there's a customer that comes in that's like i want meatballs on my spaghetti and like the you know he freaks out because he's like that's not how it's supposed to be and they're not <laughs> successful and they're not making any money and they're like about to go under because they're like serving this like authentic food and so it, it reminded me when you were talking of this kind of concept of like if you want to be successful in the food world, which is a very challenging world to be successful in the restaurant world specifically, that you have to cater to like the whims of the public and like what they want, you know? It's funny too, because all of those things, spaghetti and meatballs or a burger with fries, like those are right. very commercially viable at the same time. And it's actually harder to sell fine dining. And um, it, it's just like a really weird sort of twisted up idea Right, mm -hmm. where like there's the commercially viable. I mean, like all of these things are. It just depends on class, right? Um, yeah. But you're going to make a lot more money selling burgers. I mean, food is also so there. It's like so emotional in a way that I would say is like more than I don't know. I don't know. I was going to say like more than fashion, but it's it's just tied up in so many other things that like I feel like you could apply this like chef slowic level of ideology 
to like any kind of thing like you you know there are people who are like raw food movement people right who might say that any interference with what mother nature has given us is not acceptable and it's like well okay just by virtue of like breeding plants we're we're interfering right like there is no like purest form of any of this and so trying to like the only thing i can the only storytelling version i can think of is is Babette's Feast, which I like I watched years ago. So I'm trying to remember like they create this like extremely high end meal, but they just feed it to people like they aren't selling it. They but they still have to like access. They have to spend a lot of money to access all of these ingredients and then to prepare everything. But it's almost like that, like you said, the Christmas Carol moment of like just breaking bread, sharing a meal with people out of love is like the only true experience of food. And we we see that in effort. I mean, everything's trying to get at that, right? Like, is that the moment that brings people together? You know, here in this movie, everyone who's there is there for some like, because of some fraught or transactional relationship. Like, and so only if you are truly like, Anita brought me some ice cream she made and it was just lovely. You know, like, is that the only like real, like real <laughs> encounter we can have with food? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it really does put into question just the really difficult thing that food has to carry and the things that restaurants have to carry. They are just such transparently commercial enterprises mm-hmm. that through which you can see so many of the excesses of capitalism. And yet they also have to carry all of the sentimental meaning for people as servers of food, as suppliers of these emotional moments, like what you're talking about. And it is a hard thing to, it's it's a conflict, it's a contradiction in its existence, the restaurant's existence that makes it such a I don't know, it's just so enjoyable to talk about and write about, I think. Yeah. So what do you think about the the role of the critic in this? Like, I know that Jonathan Gold, you know, would talk about this, like how his presence at a restaurant would change the trajectory of that restaurant, you know, and here there's a critic character in this movie and she's seen as this very, um, she's the, uh, Oh man, why can't I think of words? The the person, the death with the scythe, <laughs> like she oh. comes. In the, <laughs> oh, the Grim Reaper. The Grim Reaper. <laughs> Thank you. The death with the scythe. Um, <laughs> for restaurants, like that's how the critic is played in this. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Oh yeah, I loved the critic character. She's so pretentious and so New York <laughs> City. I just thought that was wonderful. <laughs> I loved her sycophant, who was just like, oh, yes, I, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me too of the critic in, oh gosh, Ratatouille as well. And I think a lot of the movies that Pixar has made in that sort of era are very much about um, individuality and individualism and like very mm-hmm. pro individual. And so the critic is the one that quashes that because they have a set, you know, set of expectations. And, you know, I, I'm sure you have plenty of material to talk about as far as the cult of the individual. But I think that um, the critic is a force of normativity. I think that is the interesting part of the role is like you tell people as the tastemaker, like what they should expect from an experience or, you know, how to contextualize an experience um, using, you know, whatever is in your toolbox as far as ideas, ideology, you know, reference, because a lot of people aren't going to go to these restaurants, right? So they they are going to rely on you to describe this thing for them so they can be in on it. And so I think including that was a really interesting part of the movie. I think that using that character to talk about the sort of greater media sphere and how, you know, this sort of restaurant is constructed and how like, you know, the expectations put on people like, you know, the character of Slowick are constructed and Throughout the film, she, the critic character, is the one that tells them, like, no, 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 this is part of the act, right? Like, she does this act of kind of normativity Mm. in the film that I thought was really spot on for, like, what her job actually is. There's a part of the movie that, like, actually really stuck with me. So when the movie ended, I 
literally said, why does, why was this movie made? I don't know <laughs> what it was, but like this movie just didn't. And that's an like, extremely unfair thing to say. Uh, but, you know, fucking whatever. Um, I like, you know, the kind of dark humor of it didn't really work with me, even though like I can understand why people liked it. And so I left the movie just kind of feeling like, okay, but why? Like, what really, what are you saying? Or what, like, I, I just had a hard time really appreciating it in the way that I think it was, uh, m- many people did. And not because I have any problem with making fun of or sat- satirizing or ridiculing, like, high-end food culture, right? But one thing did really stick with me, and it was when the guy who brought the uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's character was just so fucking annoying and obnoxious, and you're like, yes, we've all met these people we know these people we've probably been these people to some degree he talks about this like this tool that they use which i cannot remember the name of i think it's used to make ice cream or something like that yes a paco jet thank you and i actually really kind of like internalized and appreciated when the chef was like you're ruining the magic Mm. like the obsession that like the just regular average restaurant goer has uh in the in the at this echelon i guess to just know everything and know how it's all done kind of does destroy the magic of the experience of like, yeah, like we don't have these things in our home kitchens. Like there's a there's a reason this food tastes like it it tastes and there's a reason why it's so expensive and there's a reason why it takes so long to make because like it's fucking impossible <laughs> to do as a like as a home cook, you know? And that kind of stuck with me a little bit of just being like, what is what is that line? You know, and like, yeah, you I you could make the argument that it's different for everyone. But I do I did appreciate that kind of idea of like these are kind of magical experiences going into these spaces and like being able to have this experience and these tastes and these textures and all of this stuff. And like, are we ruining it by knowing too much about it? (laughs) I think to some degree, the movie was about fandom mm. Mm. yeah yes yeah because you have the fans you're so smart <laughs> this is such a great observation you have the that's fans why john who... like was almost there yeah right and <laughs> <laughs> all the fan ecosystems you have the ones who want to pick everything apart um i think about you know video game fans who want to identify like oh this blade of grass does not look as good because they use this engine versus that engine right yeah. um and then you have the ones who just <laughs> don't really know what it's about they're just there they, they just like are participating to participate and then you have the ones that are doing it for cloud and then the other ones that are doing it just as a sort of social capital thing um so you know it was <laughs> you have all of those characters in the menu as well um, my housemate and I are watching The Last of Us together, and I, I like last night as we were watching the fourth episode or what, whatever. This is coming out way later, but um, I was like, "Oh, we're watching this in such a specific video gamey <laughs> way, where it's like, where we're like, oh, so the next scene should be this thing because that's the next thing that's coming mm-hmm. up in the game. So like, are they going to do that? Or are they not going to do that? Or like, oh, they did this instead of this, or they introduced like, and it's just I, I cannot stop." We cannot stop watching it removed from the like the fandom. I mean, whatever. I'm not like a huge Last uh, Last of Us fan, but removed from the experience of that thing because you are so deep in this space. Right. And that is such a different viewing than Kat. Like you're watching the show. You have no idea that Kathleen wasn't in the game, that that's a brand new character they made up for the show or that they like scrapped all these other scenes uh, and decided to do this one or whatever, you know, like that kind of thing. So it, that just reminded me of of like the different ways that people approach things and the different ways that fans approach things. Well, it's I mean, I worked for movie studios and when I stopped, it took me a couple of years to enjoy watching movies again because I knew too much about how the sausage was made. And like that's, um, you, you know, to, like I OK, so I, I'm, you know, Mexican-American. I grew up eating full and like you know pig's feet and stuff like that and when i talk to people who didn't have that experience i'm kind of like yeah but you eat meat so like what what don't you want to know you know like there is even that element of just like how people really do want to divorce themselves from like the production element of it i mean we would we would apply that to all sort to our iphones like or whatever but that's even more like what that critic is also there for to just be like almost 
un- just unimpressed by the magic of it. Whereas Nicholas Holt's character is deeply impressed by it, but he's also like completely doing an autopsy of like the entire situation. Now I have a a, a plot hole logic question that only just occurred to me. <laughs> Nicholas Holt's character, we learn, was aware of the entire conceit of this night. So why was he taking yes. pictures of the food? Was he gonna? When was he gonna look at those? <laughs> when do we look at pictures of food that we take, though? <laughs> I mean, I do, but I'm a weirdo. <laughs> it could be that he was. It helps me on... remember. Okay, but yeah, that's a really good point. Also, you know, it's worth pointing out too, and this isn't a plot hole, but like he knew they were gonna die, and he brought a sex worker with him because Fucked she's disposable. Up. Yeah, that's you know, yeah, like. And that that's not like not addressed, but it's like that. It's just another layer that was brought into this film to talk about this class distinction, right? And and there's something also kind of fucked up about the chef being like, "Are you with them? Or are you with us?" As if he's not of the the higher echelon uh-huh. here either, right? As the head chef, as a celebrity guy, uh, that he's like creating this distinction between him and the patrons when they're the same class of people. Yeah, that was something that also is a little confusing. Like when he makes a show of the wealthy investor that has come aboard to keep this restaurant afloat. And then those finance bros who work for that investor are there. And I kind of was like, yeah, again, why are you distancing yourself from them? Like, maybe he's not. Maybe that's the point is that he's like, we're all complicit in this. And so... We got to go down in a blaze of glory or something. But um, he was very much like, no, no, no. There's like clear levels here. And I'm a class of my own because I'm also a genius. And that separates me from everyone else. (laughs) I would say I would argue with that because I think that in real life, chefs, even celebrity chefs aren't I wouldn't count them as part of the 1% at all. Mm. When you think about politics or just, you know, political bodies in terms of, you know, who's at the top and who's at the bottom, I would group chefs in with the bottom. And I think it is okay to to interpret that conversation that you're referring to as something pretty stark in that way. Because by and large, I mean, even a chef who's gotten restaurant reviews and, and write-ups, their life is, is one of constant toil and stress and mm awfulness and <laughs> blue collar labor. And really, there's only the Thomas Kellers of the world who are maybe a dozen human beings that don't do that yeah. kind of thing. I'm glad you called that out because as I was saying that, I was like, they're also beholden to the financiers of these spaces. And just because you get a lot of write-ups and your name is known, being visible doesn't necessarily equal financial success. Uh, and I think that that's like a huge problem with our contemporary sort of influencer world, which the triangle actually kind of acknowledges in some way too, uh, if we're going to circle this around. But just like the idea that you are interviewed all the time or that you are acknowledged in the press does not mean that you are like Mm -hmm. financially stable. Uh, And like I've experienced this and I know a lot of other people that I like, you know, get, get hit up to be experts in articles and like interviews and shit. Like it doesn't mean that that translates to financial stability in any way right yeah <laughs> athletes musicians like there's so much history of like who was uh sydney sweeney who's on euphoria gave an interview recently where like she's well known she's famous right but she was like i have to take so many jobs because she's just not gotten to that level so would you say for chefs like for celebrity chefs i'm let's say middle of the road like i've maybe one time eaten at a michelin starred restaurant but like that's an experience most people never will have would you say that it's only when they get to sort of like franchise their name like kind of sell their name out to however many restaurants around the world that they would actually become like this kind of uh magnet i would say so i think you know once you get to the level of television appearances talks um food festival appearances, your own line of, you know, clothing, apron, shoes, whatever, that's that's when you profit. So it's branding, baby. It's all about putting your name <laughs> on things. Before then, it's yeah. just clout, which doesn't pay the rent. 
I had a moment in the film. I was kind of getting kind of bored. It's just like dark humor. Like, yeah. And then you see the scene where the woman is talking about how he hit on her and it was inappropriate and all this stuff. And then she stabs him in the leg. And then all of the men have to like run away and, <laughs> and then get caught or whatever. And then all like the, the women who are left in the space are eating a meal. And I literally yelled out in the theater like, it's come. <laughs> and I don't know what, why, why I said that so loudly. Uh, and I was just waiting for the, it to be like, that's like this movie just got so fucking zany yeah. that you're just like, yeah, like she totally just put jizz in the, whatever this, the foam is jizz. I don't know <laughs> what it was going to be. Right. I don't know. I just remember that moment being like, I, this is what, this is what's happening now. Right. Uh, I love that the, the guy who, um, I forget how, God, I forget. I watched this so fucking long ago. The one who was like the le- the last to get caught, like was rewarded with like a special yes. like dish of some sort, you know? And you're just like, as much as I like didn't really enjoy watching it, once you get to like the really dark part of it, I feel like it was like a smart satire of the little things in this world, you know? Like, I feel like they kind of knew what they were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's my takeaway. Like, I keep trying to, like, grapple with how I felt about this film because I I don't really have warm feelings towards it. But I I recognize the sort of intelligence of it, Mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah, it was sort of a melange of a lot of things, like Willy Wonka and the Stanford prison experiment. (laughs) I thought about that a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, And just the aesthetics of slasher films. And, uh, you know, all of the chef's table, really lovingly 4K rendered documentaries about restaurants and fine dining. You know, it was just a mishmash of all of those things into one movie. And the the fucking chef's house was a recreation of the kitchen with a bed in it. And you're just like, oh, my God, when they get to that point. Um, yeah. And, and I was half expecting, like, him having little dolls of everybody in his house because that just would have felt <laughs> yeah. really... Uh, right. The staff all sleeping in a barracks together with like a prison toilet in it. Um, I, I'm i also thinking, I mean, I I think probably my takeaway from this conversation is is I want to reconceive my perspective on the movie as being about fandom, because I think that is probably like there's so many different levels of it. But also that Tyler, Nicholas Holt's character, is then confronted with like you think you know so much but can you cook (laughs) and i thought that was a really interesting question because like i think you can be a critic and or you can be a professor or you can be an a lover of something without having the the art or skill yourself like maybe he would be able to cook if he went to culinary school or like yeah and that's the that's the argument of like that critics always get yeah of like well just do it your if you if you know so much about it just do it yourself like if you were if you actually knew what you were doing you could make a video game or you could make a right. movie or whatever which i feel like is a complete misunderstanding of the role of critics and as if any of these things are created by one person right like none of those dishes that they were being served was just at the hands of one person as we talked about with the last of us like no one person makes a game or a tv show like there's so much art and skill that goes into it from hundreds of people um but i i mean yeah by the end of the movie i was just like lol we're being s'mores like you know it it did feel like (laughs) all of the kind of like ways it was maybe going to be like sort of like arch and a high impassioned critique at the end i was just like i don't know his mom's there too like (laughs) 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 okay (laughs) it it ended up being i think a lot lighter and i appreciated that like that this wasn't a movie that necessarily like keeps you at arm's length i appreciated that it was just like like you said, like a kind of a typical slasher movie and a little bit of a little bit stupid, which I was like, thanks for letting me in. You know, um, when we watched Tar and I was like, would I have a different understanding of this movie if I knew anything about classical music? Because it does keep you at arm's length by being about something so inaccessible. And this movie is about something really inaccessible for most people, but it kind of lets you enjoy the storytelling. That was my my enjoyment of it. I wanted to actually turn something around on you two because I recently heard that, so there was a consulting chef 
for this film, Dominique Crenn, who is uh-huh. a really big name uh, in the food world. And she has restaurants in San Francisco, where I live. And her restaurant, Atelier Crenn, is closing down for a little bit for renovation. And it is going to be redesigned by the set designer who designed the restaurant in the menu. Shut up. And this is this person's first ever real life restaurant project. Mm. And how does that make you feel? <laughs> That's so fucking postmodern. <laughs> we keep talking about Baudrillard and all of that. I keep bringing up Baudrillard and all of this shit. Like, what the fuck? I knew that she was, uh, a, you guys, like, I saw her name in the credits. That is wild. Sorry. Uh, this is not a useful response. That is fucking wild, though. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm surprised that the set designer for the movie that they, I don't know why I'm surprised, but that they didn't hire someone who had restaurant experience. But like, did they just hit it off super well or something? I think so. Like, how did that, that must have been what it is, right? Because set design is not the same. Like, movies are fake. Right. Like, if you ever watch like the behind the scenes making of movies, they don't look like real life, right? Like, because of the way camera angles and shit, right? So there's something interesting about that. I keep that. coming back to your fashion analogy, but like a costume designer on a film, like there are there are very few fashion designers who also do costumes for film. And it's always because they were fashion designers first. And then a filmmaker wanted a particular aesthetic from that person, like the Redarte sisters do it sometimes. But otherwise, like you wouldn't necessarily go in the opposite direction. Like you're designing stuff for for film that is cheaper than it looks and has Velcro in it, even if it's like set in the 1800s. Like there's a big difference because of all that artifice. I certainly don't have How a does that make you feel? problem with it. I'm just like, oh, that's weird. It just feels so on the nose. San Francisco is not very good at sarcasm, I think, <laughs> or irony. We're not good at it because everything's on the nose here. It's just a little bit too dramatic um but i i have a sense that people are just not going to they'll be like oh i get to go to a restaurant inspired by the menu how cool and not think about like all the all the content <laughs> right is that like weren't they gonna do like a real like like a squid game game show right like and it was like wait but did you watch squid game i didn't watch squid game and i know that that's weird right? <laughs> yeah super fucking weird and there's something interesting too of like did uh, Ken and like her team want to do a renovation and therefore they found this person and hit it off and it just made sense to do it? Or was it like, this is a selling point for our new restaurant, right? Yeah. Is it a gimmick? Like, is it like a, a marketing gimmick of some sort? I mean, it's definitely part and also, of their it promo that they've sent me many times. Wow. <laughs> Weird. Well, I'm glad I've eaten there several times, so I never have to go back now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or like just go back and wear like a fireproof suit. You'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll just have knives like stashed in my uh, <laughs> shoes and shit just in case. All right, y'all. Uh, we are going to take a quick break and we will be right back with some freakouts. Hey, FFR listeners. Are you signed up to our Patreon yet? If you're not, you're missing out on special content made exclusively for our patrons. And if you're not a patron, that means that you're not helping me get paid. And if you're not helping me get paid, that means my good little dog Griffin isn't getting the good treats. Head on over to patreon.com slash femfreak. That's F-E-M-F-R-E-Q. Become a patron to get great content and also to make sure my dog Griffin gets the good treats. Oh, and you get the good treats as well, which in your case would be quality discussions about media. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Soleil, what are you freaking out about? So I just finished reading Nona the Ninth, which is the third book of the Locked Tomb series by Tamsin Weir. It's a sci-fi. Wonderful if you love uh, women who love women and zombies and skeletons. Really wonderful. Just a stupendous book and there's a dog with six legs in it and it's just there's it's everything to me um the whole series is just incredible and it's one of the few allowances that i give myself for reading it's it's so memey the fiction is so memey it's incredible yeah <laughs> so I, re- I read the first one it just didn't do it for me like it did for everybody else and I expected it to be a lot more queer than it was because it was promoted as this like necroman- like necromancy queer lesbian 
thing. Um, so I'm curious how the series progresses, which you obviously liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um, I think the the sequels to the first book really just ramp it up. Mm-hmm. But you also cool. have to be really, I think I was captured pretty completely by the first book. So I was really invested. Yeah, I really wasn't. And it, like, I don't know why, because it has like all of the makings of something I would like. It, at some point, it just felt like Clue. Mm. Like it just, <laughs> like I was like, I feel like I'm just like watching a game of Clue at some See, point. I but people, shit. I mean, people, yeah, <laughs> people fucking loved it. So it just didn't, it didn't hit for me. But um, yeah. But Anita, what did hit for you? What are you freaking <laughs> out about this week? Uh, I'm also freaking out about a book. I just finished Under the Whispering Door by T.J. Klune, who is the author of Under the Cerulean Sea, which I've definitely freaked out before on this podcast. Um, Klune has this way of telling these like really precious, pure, sincere, heartwarming stories about queer family love. Uh, like found family, redemption, like all of these things. And I just, when I finished Under the Cerulean Sea, I was just like, you know when you like finish a book that you love and you like look around and you're alone and you're like, I just experienced this like transformative thing. Like who else can I share this with? It The same thing happened to me with this uh-huh. one. It's definitely not the vibe that I normally read either. So it was really nice to have something that was like just so sweet. Uh, the premise of Under the Whispering Door is that this man, Wallace, who is an attorney and a total piece of shit, just like an awful, awful, awful human, dies. Uh, a Reaper comes to get him and take him to this way station, which is a tea shop. And and the idea of this way station is that you meet this ferryman and he like helps you transition into the next phase of being. Mm. And so it is a story about being a better human, mm. right? Like about accountability and recognizing your actions, about finding found family, about like connecting, about helping people, about like being just being fucking better than you can be and appreciating what is around you. Um, and it's just the sweetest fucking story ever. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's Under the Whispering Door by TJ Klune. Awesome. Cat. Well, you are not freaking out about a book. No, I'm not. <laughs> I can't read. Um, no, I, actually, that's like kind of it. Strangely enough, I can only listen to audiobooks anymore. Like, I really struggle to sit down and read a book. Um, it is a, just a different phase of attention that I can pay at this point in my life. But I watched for the first time Ikiru, a Kurosawa movie from 1952. It was on my mind because I know the current uh, Bill Nye starring movie Living uh, is a remake of Ikiru, which itself is an adaptation of uh, a short story, I think, from the 1800s, a Russian short story. And I wanted to talk about it on this episode because it asks these questions about purpose and especially about purpose in terms of our work and our careers. Now, this is like Japan in 1952 is a westernized we're dealing with like a very westernized society in this movie and our main character is a bureaucrat a city bureaucrat who learns that he has a terminal illness so he's trying to figure out how to live that's what ikiru means to live um how to live in the time that he has left and there's something that really really struck me in this movie that i can't stop thinking about he seeks out company from this this very young woman who's a friend, kind of a coworker turned friend, who she leaves working uh, at City Hall to go work at a factory. And she finds so much more satisfaction working at this factory. And there are these like questions that feel deeply incongruous to like our modern conversation about work and work-life balance and how we should or shouldn't bring ourselves to the workplace and our whole selves. And she says, so she works at this factory that makes um, toys, like children's and babies' toys. And she has this little, like, rabbit that kind of you wind it up and it jumps across the table. And she says, I feel like I'm making friends with every baby in Japan. And I thought, 
that does seem lovely. That does seem special to have this kind of job that is physical and tactile and that what you're doing is connecting to people. And this inspires our bureaucrat to use his bureaucracy work to like fix a cesspool and build a park and have some influence on the people in his city, like actual tactile influence on people's lives. But I still haven't quite unpacked how I feel about this notion of like um, that we would say, yes, working in this factory on the assembly line is like the way to feel productive and satisfied. But there's just there was so much really to unpack and to think about, especially today, as there are so many different kinds of work that use different type types of labor, emotional labor and mental labor and physical labor in different ways. Um, but it's, you know, I can see why this movie's a classic and that people have have loved going to it for for years. And it's also, um, yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about it in terms of like product and output. Um, so I highly recommend it. And I'm I'm interested to to see. It looks like this remake that is has is in theaters now is also set in the 50s in the UK. Um and so I'm curious, like, I would think, I would hope that they're going to kind of make a different movie out of it. I don't think you can just transpose the story necessarily, but I also haven't read the original Russian. So I don't know how, or like a translation of the original Russian, I don't know how much they had to change to set it in Japan in, in 1952. But um, I recommend it. I don't know. Talking about this movie also made me hungry. So I <laughs> <laughs> I really want, I want something, something good, but. That's for that's for me and my and my gods to figure out. Because that has been our show for today. So Leigh, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people learn more about you and read your read your work, listen to your shows? Oh gosh. Um so uh you can find me on Twitter sometimes at H O O L E I L or yeah, you'll find me on the San Francisco Chronicle website. I literally just changed my job today, so I will not be writing restaurant reviews anymore. Oh! Um, yeah, I'm their new opinion columnist and cultural critic, so I'll just be writing about all kinds of things. Fantastic. Oh, that's so exciting. Yes, thank you. I'm Anita Sarkeesian, and you can find me at Anita Sarkeesian on all the things. I'm Kat Spada, and I am on Twitter at Kat underscore EX underscore Machina, and Feminist Frequency is on socials at FemFreak. If you are a Patreon subscriber, be sure to stick around for the bonus episode with our special guest, Salejo. If you like the show, please help other people find it. Subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much. So much. For listening. For listening. Bye. Bye.